When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening and welcome to Wrestling Rewind. I am your host, Angel Amoroso, and I am joined by my co-host. Iron Man Tommy Cairo. What's up, Angel? How are you? What's up, Tommy? I'm lost in this book, the Calgary book. Yes, very interesting stuff. So last week we were doing a book reading of Stampede Wrestling, uh, the, the Calgary and some stuff about the Hart family, and that was part one. So we're going to get right into part two and pick up where we left off because yeah. these stories are wild. So, Tommy, uh, pick up where we left off. Okay, we're, we're going to be on a road in some godforsaken town in Canada in the ice with a crappy van. Now, so, who are we talking about here? Well, like- we left off with um, a situation um, – revolving around shows that Bruce Hart had booked. Um, and they're talking about, you know, what's, what's going on on the road, driving on, you know, in a, in a van that was barely uh, mechanically sound, hours and hours on the road, torture, you know, uh, ribs, um, just not a pretty picture. But I believe there were probably a couple guys along the way that actually enjoyed uh, this because this is the true way. This, If you graduated from the Hart Foundation or a Hart dungeon or had anything to do with anyone who was still training in that fashion, even if Bruce Hart was gone, um, you, you were blessed and you made money in the business. Yeah. I don't think there was anybody that graduated that didn't go on and make money and they're still making money. By the way, have you seen Natty lately? Uh, Nightheart? No, no. Wow, she looks fantastic. Like, I, I don't know. What, God uh, bless. You know, maybe work, whatever, but God bless her. I mean, she's got to be up there now. If she know? if she can still work, God bless her. You know, yeah. keep them around every, every day until the end. That's and where is she from? We're happy with it. Jim yeah. Neidhart. Yeah, one of our she's good friends. Yeah. What a shame he's not around, huh? Yeah. No. Anyway. All and right. So, on the story right about... Uh, the excessive body odor and belching and farting and torture and beatings uh, in Calgary wrestling. So yeah. uh, let's get back to these interesting stories in part two. And uh, real quick, what I want to say about this area is it was not unlike Hawaii or not unlike Los Angeles, places where guys came and went because they were in between territories and they were utilized while they were there. So it was an influx. And a hybrid wrestling at its beginning, um, the melding of all these different styles that these hearts were hiring these people from all over. You know, now you got the Dynamite Kid coming. So, you know, um, innovation, pioneers of, of this business. So anyway, here we go. Uh, the farther north the caravan traveled, the more uninviting the roads. These big semis would come up from behind, and you'd have to pull over and let them by. Then you'd wait for all the dust to settle down. Johnson remembers. You'd be traveling along, and all of a sudden, that's the end of the road. There's a lake there. You'd have to wait a half hour for the bars to come along and take you across. Then you'd travel another 50 kilometers to hit another lake, and you'd wait for the next bridge, barge. 
Bruce Hart remembers obscenely fat bumblebees and the kamikaze horseflies splattered on the windshield and the deer, antelope, and porcupines that sauntered onto the road. There were buffaloes up there that looked like they were on steroids, he says. They roam around the highway, not yielding to anyone. They stroll across the road and give you this look like, ah, fuck you. I'll let you go when I feel like it. This is brutal. This is brutal. Canada's so cute. I like kidding David Boy Smith had only recently returned to the Stampede Wrestling Circuit after a phenomenal four-year run in the World Wrestling Federation. Its WrestleMania was considered the Super Bowl of the wrestling world, and the Bulldogs had appeared on three of the cards in in three of the cards in one in which they won the WWF World Tag Titles. The heavy metal star Ozzy Osbourne stood in their corner for that single match. The British Bulldogs were paid twenty thousand dollars each. They had children's toys made of their likenesses. They were on posters, collectors' cards, and all manner of merchandise. They made more money than they ever thought they'd see in their lives. Enough that Dynamite was able to pay cash for a two hundred twenty thousand. 18-acre ranch outside Calgary for him and his wife. And as they had become stars of network television, the Bulldogs appeared in public service announcements, preaching hypocritically to the kiddies about virtues of clean living. That sounds familiar. They even made a guest appearance on the hit TV action series, The A-Team. There were but a few of the perks, these were but a few of the perks to be had when you were two of the top stars in the WWF. That organization, run by Vince McMahon Jr., had changed the face of professional wrestling. For decades, the North American wrestling scene had been divided into multiple territories, such as Stu Hart's Western Canadian promotion. promotion. Each promoter had his own slice of land, his own kingdom, as it were, and he controlled the wrestling cards in that territory. While they did swap talent and occasionally do co-promotions, it was rare that promoters crossed into each other's territory. Where that did happen, it usually provoked a territorial war, and the aggressor would find himself blacklisted in the industry. Uh, But McMahon didn't follow the rules. Instead, he finagled a national presence for himself on network TV, and in the world of pay-per-view, he defied the territorial boundaries, booking shows in every territory across the country, poaching each organization's top talents while he was at it. McMahon orchestrated high-profile tie-ins with the rock world, via Cindy Lauper and MTV. He boasted superhero-like Hulk Hogan as his top champion, and Megastar crossed over the mainstream to the mainstream when he appeared in Rocky III with Sylvester Stallone. McMahon epitomized the flash over substance. It was a decade in which a Hollywood star became president of the United States. The marketing images in a rock video became more important than the music and blockbuster movies reign supreme. It was a decade punctuated by unparalleled corporate greed, a time tailor-made for the figure like McMahon, and he proposed Prosper, turning his father's Connecticut and New York-based territory into a global multimedia empire that brought professional wrestling to the masses in a way that Stu Hart never dreamed possible. The WWF was impossible to compete with. All wrestling territories seemed like small potatoes next to its big-budget cartoon Flash. As their fans abandoned them, territories toppled one after another. Despite its superb talent roster and loyal fan base, Stampede Wrestling had also fallen on hard times financially. Stu Hart was considering 
selling the business in 1984 when Vince McMahon came along, looking to break into the Western Canadian market rather than fighting what was probably a losing battle with its grassroots production values and single camera TV tapings, how could Stampede hope to compete? Stu told McMahon the promoting rights to his territory, sold. Uh, the deal called for Stu to be paid $100,000 a year for 10 years, plus 10% of the gate from all house shows in Calgary and Edmonton. That's good until Vince decides not to promote there anymore. Right. <laughs> Stu, in turn, would give McMahon his TV spots across Western Canada. Another stipulation was that McMahon would hire top talents of Stampede Wrestling, including Stu's son, Bret Hart, his son-in-law, Jim Neidhart, and Davy Boy Smith and a Dynamite Kit. Cousins Dynamite and Davy had been Stampede Wrestling icons during the early 1980s. Dynamite, who came from poor English coal mining town of Wigan, had been wrestling since he was a teenager. It was Bruce Hart who brought him to Calgary in 1978 when he was only 19 years old. At first, Stu was reluctant, believing the, the kid, who then stood five foot eight and weighed no more than 170 pounds to be a run. Surely he'd be squashed by the hopes of the wrestling game. Supposedly, uh, his exact words were something like, eh, skinny bastard, eh? So he wasn't too impressed, but he became, he became impressed. Um, all right, so... Uh, Dynamite uh, soon turned the promotion, which was doing lukewarm business in the late 70s, on its head. Nobody had seen moves like this, and the fans were excited again. This little runt was a draw, bringing folks back into the arenas by the hundreds. A fearless acrobat, he launched himself across the ring when hit, making his opponents look like Superman. When he was bounced off the ropes or given a simple hip toss, he flew like a crash test dummy shot from a cannon. On the offensive, he sprang at his foes like a panther. Now, you got to understand, he was doing stuff that we don't even know how he was doing it. You know, uh, then he was, you know, uh, what he did with Tiger Mask in Japan. So this was truly the beginning of uh, what would come to be utilized, many of his moves and many of things that he did. I think the wrestling business is where it is on that in that aspect because of him. Uh, I really do. And that territory was not... Wrestle more like a Japanese wrestler. Yeah. Uh, when you look at his technique and the things that he did, he was the first, uh, you know, in, in our area to, to wrestle like the Japanese. And, and, yeah, and when you did that, and you did it here now in Canada, and now there's another... So you're already adding to the hybrid that would... Just like um, MMA... Guys come from different areas, but now we've had enough. It's been around long enough that the best guys did it all from the beginning. But this is what, what this this promotion was like, and it wasn't a big man. There were big men, but there were a lot of. They had a couple different divisions lighter, so it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that he could be looked at as a threat if they put him with the lighter guys because he was so much different than anybody else. Right, dynamite was genuinely tough, too. Even though the outcomes of bouts were generally predetermined and the punches pulled, it was uncommon for the boys to get rough with each other. Despite his size, Dynamite quickly made it clear that he could hold his own. He was fast, strong, and prone to sharp, violent outbursts. Mm -hmm. 
He had a complex about his size. And in security, he carried like a demon on his shoulder. And when he felt slighted in any way, when the trigger was pulled on his temper, Dynamite was someone to be feared. He loved being feared. Being a hard man, as the Brits call it, was everything to Dynamite. Win, lose, or draw, he used to boast. He never backed down from anybody. Once he discovered steroids, eventually bulking up to almost 230 pounds, he became more volatile and dangerous than ever. Davy Boy Smith from Manchester arrived in Calgary in 1981, four years younger than Dynamite. He worshipped his cousin and tried to emulate him in every way. Although he lacked Dynamite's mean streak, fearlessness, and talent for innovation, Smith was an exceptionally gifted athlete, and his star power was obvious. Pin-up handsome with a warm look in his eyes, Davy Boy became a favorite with the female fans. They cried when bad guys beat on him. He could fly almost as high as dynamite, too. And once he got on steroids, or the juice, as the boys called it, he developed a massive build that dynamite, to his chagrin, could never match. Very um, beefy. Very beefy. Yeah, the only problem with that statement is he did match it because he was much, pound for pound, had more muscle. You said it. He was very beefy. Yes. But as musculature, dynamite kid was hard as a rock, and you could see everything. Yeah, the abs, like, unbelievable abs, you know. Yep. And he didn't even have huge out with him. Yep. Um, just phenomenal. Uh, while Dynamite and Davey had been cast as bitter foes throughout most of their stampede run, the man recreated them as a team, the British Bulldogs, and their hard, fast, acrobatic style left spectators awestruck. But the dream soon crumbled. First, Dynamite's high-impact style caught up with him, and he ruptured two discs in his back. The Bulldogs were forced to drop their titles. It was the beginning of sta a steady physical decline that would eventually end Dynamite's revolutionary career. To make matters worse, the Bulldogs were living at a punishing pace, wrestling well over 300 nights a year, never taking off time to let their injuries heal. On the road, they partied like the decadent rock stars. Nightly booze binges, some of the wrestlers smoking crack cocaine after the matches, along with his regular intake of steroids, up to 1,200 milligrams of testosterone injected into his buttocks daily. Dynamite was becoming increasingly reliant on a number of addictive substances. Sounds like this was no different than Calgary. Right. I'm sure um, you've heard the story about how in Japan they waited till he passed out and hung him upside down by his feet and were throwing the steroid needles at his butt cheeks. Yeah. He was a dartboard. Yeah, that wow. was that was a classic story back in the day. Actually. I never heard that. Yeah, now, would, would that have been the Americans or the Japanese guys? Uh, no, the American guys oh. went with them down there and did that. So I was going to say it better not have been a Japanese. Guy. No, no. I have to go back there and kick some asses. Yeah, right. Uh, let's see. Wild oh, stories. Um, yeah, um, Dynamite was becoming increasingly reliant on a number of addictive substances on his. Of his WWF years, he writes, a normal working day for me was speed to wake me up in the morning to catch an early flight, Valium to make me sleep on the plane, Percocet just before the match, then we wrestle, hit the beer and the cocaine until the early hours before taking another Valium to put me to sleep at night. That makes me want to want to cringe. <laughs> yes, it sounds about right, though, right? What a roller coaster, right? Hey. You know, back in the day, you, you do what you have to yep. get through the day and the night. And never uh, 
judge a man till you walk a mile in his shoes. And there exactly. aren't met too many people that ever lived that have walked in his shoes. So, exactly. um, the Bulldogs became no notorious in WWF dressing room for their malicious pranks. Dynamite had long been fond of slipping Ed Slack into the wrestlers' book, even causing them to have embarrassing accents, often causing them to have embarrassing accents just about the time they hit the ring. Wayne Farris, who wrestled in both Stampede Wrestling and the WWF as a sleazy Elvis wannabe, named the Honky Tonk Man, says the Bulldogs once slipped a sleeping pill into wrestler Outback Jack's drink. They then shaved off all his hair, including his eyebrows, stripped him naked, and stuck him in an elevator, sending him down to the hotel lobby. I can't. The worst, the worst thing you could do was be mad. Because once they knew they could get to you, they wouldn't stop. Of course, yeah. Easy target. Um, I, I see him terrorize people, Honky Tonk says, of his experiences with Dynamite in the WWF dressing room. One day, a French-Canadian wrestler named Jacques Rougeau Jr. blamed Dynamite when he found his clothing in tatters after a match. Dynamite swore he was innocent and attacked Rougeau later that evening, sucker punching him while he was playing cards in the dressing room. Oh. Weeks later, in a retaliation, Jocks and his brother Ray Raymond blindsided Dynamite, who claims Jocks was wearing a pair of brass knuckles. Dynamite lost four teeth and his mouth was torn to shreds. He got exactly what he deserved, says Hawkins Tom. Although McMahon tried to patch things up, Dynamite was always on bad terms with the WWF after that incident, and it wasn't long before the Bulldogs left the organization. Uh, which, to me, um, that honky talk, I know, Wayne, he's like a prima donna kind of guy. Um, and you know what? Uh, I don't think that that makes you a tough guy that you snuck around the corner and hit him with a pair of brass knucks. I mean, I don't think that makes you any better than him being a bully. You know what I mean? So why not uh, face him, you know, man to man? Or beg for him to leave you alone like a, a, little, a little girl. Yeah, ribs are red. Like, take yeah. it to move on, you know? And certainly getting upset is not the thing to do. <laughs> okay. Um, meanwhile, back in Calgary, the Hearts were running Stampede Wrestling again, having reviving the promotion in 1985. Surprisingly, the WWF juggernaut had encountered a backlash in Alberta. The group's early live events in the province proved to be a financial disappointment. Fans had turned away in droves, at least in part out of loyalty to the local wrestling they missed so much. McMahon, who wasn't making money in the territory, wanted out of his agreement with Stu, saying it wasn't feasible for him. So they couldn't get WWF product over after they saw what they've been saying. You know what I mean? Right, uh, right. Of course not. <laughs> fans had turned away in droves. McMahon, who wasn't making money in the territory, wanted out of his agreement with Stu, saying it wasn't feasible for him. He told Stu he was free to start up Stampede Wrestling again. Of course, the checks would start, stop. So Stu agreed to the new deal, and Stampede Wrestling was back in business. Uh, after the Bulldogs left the WWF, it was natural that they returned to Stampede Wrestling. But Dynamite was no longer the same man who had once set the promotion ablaze. He couldn't get over his loss to Rougeau. He couldn't accept that another man had beaten him down. That he might be lesser in the eyes of the boys. His reputation as the hardest man in the ring had become compromised. Somebody had stood up against his tyranny and won. It preyed on dynamic dynamite, eating him away as his pride like acid, driving him nearly insane with bitterness. That's horrible. Um, I think he should have done something like, go get him again. 
know, he suffered. He didn't have to just carrying the weight of that. And I, you know, I, I kind of can, uh, I can, I can understand that. And I can relate to that. Um, not being who I once was and thinking that everybody expects you to still be and trying to constantly live up to that. Eventually, you know, it wears you down and father time will do that. So if you don't do it gracefully, it takes even more toll on you than it should. Right. So that's a shame. I'm really sorry he had to suffer like that. You know, in his wheelchair alone in some crappy apartment, smoking cigarettes. Horrible. Just horrible. It's really sad. Um, after the incident with Rougeau, I think Tommy felt the need to reclaim his invincibility. He said, Ross Hart, another son, son of Stu, who worked behind the scenes training and doing TV production. Suddenly, he didn't feel like the toughest guy on the block anymore. Ego bruised and drug crazed, Dynamite returned to Stampede Wrestling in the early part of 1989 on the condition that he become head booker for the territory. Working with the promoter, the booker formulates the show's storylines and determines the outcome of the matches. Who will get the big push and win the title belt? Who will wrestle babyface and who will wrestle heel? Booker calls all these shots, and Dynamite wanted the gig. Bruce Hart had been the main booker since Stampede reopened in the fall of 1985. But Stu sensed it was time for a change. At his best, Bruce was a fantastic idea man, years ahead of his time. Corrupt referees, rebellious heroes who were borderline villains. So he was doing the babyface heel, heel babyface back then. Creepy monster heels who were in league with the forces of the occult. These concepts would all make the WWF millions of dollars in the years to come, and Bruce was beating them to the punch on it. Fans loved the, the twisted angles Bruce dreamed up, but Stu disagreed with the way his son managed the business. The wrestlers found Bruce manipulative and backstabbing. They didn't like the way he played dressing room politics. Bruce had his favorites, the wrestlers claimed, and he held grudges too. You'd be his chosen star one day, destined for the main event matches, but if you didn't suck up to him, or if you fell on his bad side, your character would flounder. Of course, this is a common complaint against bookers in the wrestling world. The booker is the man calling the shots and it's a rare booker who makes everyone in the dressing room happy. True. Sounds but familiar. <laughs> if you are the booker and you're working, that's more of a problem than if you're a booker and you're not working. Right. Uh, Stu often shared uh, his reservations with Bruce uh, always had five or six heels in a corner of the ring, and they all had weapons, and Bruce would go into that corner and beat the hell of this guy. Stu didn't think it was believable. Coming from Bruce, Stu was passionate that the action inside the ring looked real. Fans had to buy into every move. However, it's not uncommon for bookers who also wrestle to cast themselves as stars. And it's hard to deny that the fans loved Bruce, even though his ring skills didn't come close to those Dynamite Kid. Horrible. He was horrible. I had to work in a tag team, you know, in New York. Yeah. Uh, it says, uh, Dynamite Kid, he was, uh, he couldn't come close to Dynamite Kid. He was a solid performer who knew how to work a crowd. That didn't matter to the wrestlers, who griped that the only reason he had got where he was in the game was because he was the boss's brat. So Stu rel relieved Bruce of his booking duties, and when Dynamite, swinging his star clout, demanded the job, he got it. I don't know. But according to Ross Hart, Dynamite's booking was disastrous. He was awful, Ross says. He was a great wrestler, a 
great performer, but his booking concepts were terrible. It was just a lot of gimmicks. Let's have a cage match. Let's have a street match. We're just talking about that. And it was quite often built around ill-conceived storylines. Storylines need to be developed over a period of time. And with Tommy, he was just hot shot, trying to do these things instantaneously. You might attract fans for a while, but then there's nothing to follow it with, and a lot of matches were poorly received. In April, Dynamite took a month off to wrestle in Japan. When he returned, found that Stu had handed the reins back to Bruce. Dynamite wasn't the performer he had been at that point, Ross says. He wasn't making the effort anymore, and he was pretty battered up with all his injuries. He was never the same after his back injury. I think he was having trouble coming to terms with the reality that his career was spiraling downward. Then he got the slap in the face being replaced as a booker, the commander by Bruce. I don't think Tommy could accept that. He basically plotted and established the first mutiny he could. How are we on time so I know where to... Right? Uh, a few minutes. Okay. We're good. Bruce Hart, Bruce Hart was taking his turn driving on the yellow knife track. The Japanese wrestler who went by the name of Sumuhara was riding shotgun, while Dynamite, Davy Boy, and the other wrestlers partied in the back. Me and this Japanese guy were the only guys in the van who were not completely plastered, for sense. Everyone else was drunk or stoned. Dynamite came up and kept trying to offer me a beer. I don't mind having a beer, but not while I'm driving. So I said, no, it's okay. But he started getting insistent, which was immediately a tip-off to me. They were getting almost belligerent and obnoxious about it. So finally, for a peaceful coexistence, I said, okay. I faked drinking it a bit and then passed it to the Japanese guy. As Bruce had suspected, the beer was spiked. That was clear. When the van pulled over for gas in Fox Creek, about two and a half hours northwest of Edmonton, and Sumuhara was so fucked up, he literally couldn't crawl out of the van. So I'm sure they gave him a halcyon, an H-bomb. Exactly. Bruce turned to Dynamite and Davey and snapped. I'm driving you with the souls. If I had drunk that beer, what the hell do you think would have happened? This is a two-lane stretch of highway. And they're in, they're in, in the van that he's driving, right? Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's beyond the rib. This is a two-lane stretch of highway. We could have hit a semi head-on. They just gave me this fuck you type of look, Bruce says. About an hour later, the van blew its engine, forcing all 18 wrestlers to squeeze together in the second van. Their travel cases perched on their knees as the summer heat rose to scorching temperatures. So, too, did the tension. The van began to look like, feel like an oven. Bruce, having taken his turn at the wheel, climbed into Johnson's Thunderbird, hoping to lighten the load in the van. On the bright side, Bruce says, That's night, that night show in Yellowknife was stellar. The next evening, as Bruce remembers, the tour hit Hay River, a town of 3,500, a couple of hours drive southwest of Yellowknife. Bruce had to arrive early for a radio interview. He had scheduled to promote that night's match. Again, he caught a ride with Johnson. He invited several of the wrestlers to ride with him, but nobody wanted to get up earlier than they had to. Trouble began that evening. The show was supposed to kick off at 7.30, but none of the other wrestlers, wrestlers had arrived except the ring veteran Bulldog Bob Brown and his nephew Curry Brown, who had driven up on their own. Irate, Bruce started the show almost half an hour late, squaring off against the chunky 275-pound Curry Brown. Bruce and Curry fought for 45 minutes. I'll give him that much. Way too long for an opening match, Bruce says. Luckily, he was a virgin 
it was, this was a virgin crowd, and they were fairly tolerant. After stalling for a time, Bruce hit the ring again, this time with Bulldog Bob Brown. I came up with this bogus pretext where he said I cheated to beat Curry or some bullshit, Bruce says. When the others finally arrived, Bruce stormed into the dressing room. Bruce says he confronted Dynamite for being late, which Dynamite took exception to. Dynamite claims he encountered a cocky heart grinning like a Cheshire cat, taking pleasure in how awful the road trip had been for those in the van. Drunken, Dynamite threw an iron fist, melting Bruce in the jaw. Bruce claims Davey Boy followed up the assault with a headbutt to the teeth. Pandemonium ensued as Bruce went down. The wrestlers gathering around like frenzied gorillas. They wanted blood. Oh, my God. That, that's wild. You do not want to be uh, uh, in front of Dynamite. He don't care. Headbutt him. Break his nose. Good for him. Yeah. He sees to enjoy the pain. Yeah. Um, Dynamite stormed toward the ring to wrestle his match. On the way, he was swung a punch at Johnson, who was acting as ring announcer, clocking him in front of the fans. Oh, wow. <laughs> After the match, Dynamite returned to the dressing room for another stab at Bruce. That's when Bruce and Johnson dashed to the van and locked themselves inside. It's still not clear exactly why the wrestlers were so late arriving that evening. Dynamite claimed that a rock hit the van's windshield, smashing it out, and that the van got another flat tire. Bruce doesn't buy it. He heard another story from some of the more innocent wrestlers on the trip. They were all drinking and fucking around in yellow that night, and they didn't leave until at least 5 p.m., Bruce says. They had been chasing whatever woman were up there, and finally they set off all hammer. About 40 miles outside of town, Dynamite got this brilliant idea to give them an, an excuse for being late, and he kicked the windshield out of the van. So the big excuse was that the rock hit the windshield. The whole thing blew out up in their faces, because now they're riding along and getting pelted by these bees and horse flies. Great. When the van blew its tires, the Motley crew was out of luck. The boys had thrown out the spare to make room in the cab. Bruce thinks they may have hitchhiked into Hay River. I couldn't believe that adults would actually do things this stupid, Bruce says, of the whole sordid scene. Wow. Wrestlers. wrestlers. <laughs> adults, but wrestlers, you know, so believe it, because they do stupid shit like this. You know, and, and what gets me is we go in a locker room, and I, I know without knowing 90% of the guys' histories, you know, there's a few that I know that are still around, some that I trained, but um, these guys don't know. This is the stuff they should be reading to understand how blessed they are and lucky they are to be uh, allowed to wrestle, having not had the proper background, proper training, proper dues-paying trips like this. Maybe not this this horrible, but certainly any trip where you're away from your family in less than desirable conditions, you have to really love what you're doing to enjoy it. Um, right, or right. Get something positive out of it. Like I remember waking up after being knocked out in, in a hotel Philadelphia, and you and Jason had was two two queen size beds in there, or two king size, and had one whole bed loaded with food. From yeah. I don't, I mean, I'm talking food for like 40 people, and you know, it was like, sussy. Yeah, I, they're like, you want to eat? I'm like, yeah, and I guess we'll be eating tomorrow and the next day too. Yeah, yeah, good times though, right? I remember, it was beautiful. We I, spent I remember, that place. I remember. Taking some of that because it was it was winter. We were held up, I think, for a storm or whatever. So I took the, we took some of that and we put it out the window. Um, yeah. And then there, and then there, I think there was might have been a microwave. We heated yeah. it or something. Yeah. Yes. 
keep was, keeping it fresh. Yeah. But this is a great book, and I love this book. We'll have to get back to this uh, on another episode and tell more stories about the Hart family and and Davy Boy and you know Dynamite. All these great stories to tell from this book about Calgary and Stampede Wrestling. And, and we live it as we're as we're reading it. You can live it, right? It's yeah, like right there. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, passion and pain is the yes, passion and pain. Stampede Wrestling. If um, if you, you don't have it. Pick it up uh, for yourself. Tommy, where did you get this one? Um, this is one of... Oh, I keep doing this. This is not... <laughs> I'll get it straight. Um, now I lost you. Hold on. No, you, you, you're you right, on. So, what, um, I started when my family became aware... I became aware of... Uh, um, what's Scott Teal's Crowbar Press? Okay. I saw the myriad of books that didn't look like the stuff that you bought the Hulk Hogan book, and first year that came out, Mick Foley, right? All that um, glad-handing and never talking bad about anybody, just, you know, only enough to be safe. And I started reading, I, I don't know which was the first, but every holiday, uh, Father's Day, Christmas, uh, my family asked me ahead of time, what do you want? And I just keep writing down titles. I just got the... Uh, Buddy Rogers book, which we started. Okay. This I've had for a while. Uh, I read the whole thing, uh, and then when I picked it up uh, again the other day, just looked through it again, I said, you know what? This is one of the few books. I'm going to tell you, I got stacks of books, and I'm not going to badmouth anybody, but I will tell you, out of all the books I have, the ones that were even worth reading were the, the whole story of the NWA, how it became Monopoly on wrestling, um, The uh, uh, Hard Way by Don Fargo, uh, dynamite about the dynamite kid. This uh, pride and passion, um, and there's one or two more. And of course, all the stuff that is arch arch archival, that is factual and has dates and times and and, and profiles. But um, yeah. those are the books. There's only a few. So many, though. You have so many. And yeah. there's so many for us to cover on uh, future editions of our Wrestling Archives book readings. And we'll get back to this one. And also, The Heels was a great uh, episode. Yeah. We did uh, some reading from there. So we'll, we'll get to all these titles in the future. So uh, make sure to join us every week. Uh, Sunday at 7 p.m. on the Monty and the Pharaohs YouTube. We're taking it back. We're taking we're, it back. Yeah, we're taking it all the way back into uh, reading reports and book readings and just getting into some deep stories and details about all your favorite legends of professional wrestling. So join us every week uh, at 7 p.m. over on Monty and the Pharaohs. And for my co-host, the Iron Man, Tommy Cairo, I am uh, the Virgin Princess Angel saying, have a nice night and a nice life. See you. Good night. <laughs>